So Acts chapter 12 begins with what can only be described as a major setback in the life of the early church, which was facing fierce persecution. The chapter ends with the chief instigator of that persecution, Herod Agrippa I, being removed from the picture altogether. And this morning, we're going to try and understand the implications of that under three loose headings. So number one, the world hates Jesus and his followers. Secondly, the world will try to stamp out the church. And thirdly, Jesus will uphold his church. So firstly, the world hates Jesus and his followers. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Having read the Gospels, we shouldn't be at all surprised that the early church faced persecution. Uh, Jesus had a polarizing effect on the people around him. Uh, Some received his message, received him with joy, faith, and thanksgiving. Others, the majority, in fact, hated him. The religious establishment and the masses hated Jesus. That is why he was crucified. Why else would he have been crucified? I mean, he's the only person who ever lived who never did anything wrong. Jesus literally never harmed anyone. What else, apart from hatred, could account for his execution? Just over 2,000 years ago, God entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ, and the world responded with hatred. Why? Well, quite simply because the world is in rebellion against God. That's why this world is in such a mess. And at its core, sin is an attempt to supplant the rule of God with the rule of man. Humanity is making a concerted effort to overthrow God. So when God shows up in person, what better way to overthrow God than to kill him? 2,000 years on, and humanity is still engaged in its sinful rebellion against God. The world still hates Jesus. Because if Jesus is Lord, that means that we are not. We don't want to be told that our deeds are evil. We don't want to be accountable. We don't want to be told that we'll face judgment. In essence, humanity's attitude is one of indignation. How dare God try to tell us how to live our lives? He should just leave us alone. Thankfully, he loves us far too much to leave us alone. If we are willing to humble ourselves and make Jesus Lord of our lives, then our evil deeds are forgiven. And when we face judgment, we will be declared not guilty. If we make Jesus Lord of our lives, we'll enjoy a right relationship with God forever a relationship that will, over time, change and transform us so that we become more like Jesus. But the world has rejected Jesus. The world hates Jesus. It follows, therefore, that the world will hate those who hold up Jesus' teaching. You know, there are many good causes that one uh, might speak up for. Environmental issues. You might be concerned about the amount of plastic in our oceans. Humanitarian issues, you might be outraged that uh, immigrants are being kept in cages. Social issues, 
You might be angered by injustice and prejudice. And so we should be. And we can speak up passionately about any of those things, and by and large, we'll be applauded. And as Christians, our faith gives us the motivation and the impetus to strive for positive change in all areas of life. But if we speak up passionately for Jesus, we'll be met with a very different response. If we're dismayed to see the world rejecting its creator and we hold up the name of Jesus, we will face opposition because Jesus is seen as a threat to our autonomy and self-assertion. There can only be one king. It's not me and it's not you. It's Jesus. If we hold up Jesus' teaching, sooner or later we will face opposition. The 18th century Anglican minister George Whitfield wrote about a certain preaching engagement and he said it was a particularly calm and relaxed meeting because only a few clods of earth and bricks were thrown at him. The earliest confession of the church was to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Whenever and wherever that is proclaimed, it will provoke an angry backlash. And we see that so clearly in Acts chapter 12, which begins with a very bleak picture. Uh, Now, we all know that Jesus had 12 disciples, and you probably know that there were three of the 12 who were particularly close to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. When Jesus went to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, who did he take into the room with him? Peter, James, and John. When Jesus was revealed in all his glory, transfigured at the top of the mountain, who was with him? Peter, James, and John. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus took himself away from the group to pray, who did he ask to stay near him? Peter, James, and John. I think you get the idea. So these three disciples were like the backbone of the early church. And at the beginning of chapter 12, disaster has struck. Peter is in prison under armed guard. James has been beheaded. And John is no doubt a wanted man. So who is the main instigator of this satanic plot to destroy the church? Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa came from a family with a long pedigree of fighting against God. His grandfather, Herod the Great, was responsible for the murder of the innocents. If you think back to the nativity, when Herod ordered the destruction of all the children under the age, all the boys under the age of two in Bethlehem, that was Herod Agrippa's grandfather, Herod the Great. His uncle, Herod Antipas, lots of Herods. Herod Antipas was responsible for the execution of John the Baptist. He was also involved in Jesus' trial. You remember that Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, Herod Antipas. And Herod mocked him, put a purple robe around him, and sent him back to Pilate. So Herod Agrippa's family, the Herodians, were fiercely opposed to Jesus and his followers. As a side note, the Apostle Paul will stand before Herod Agrippa later in the book of Acts. But of course, it's not Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I died. Paul will stand before Herod Agrippa II. So there are, in fact, four Herods 
these four historical characters that are introduced um, through the Gospels and the book of Acts. But today we're concerned with Herod Agrippa I, who, like all the Herods, was a, a very unpopular ruler on account of his Edomite ancestry, so he wasn't truly Jewish, and on account of the fact that he sidled up to the Romans. He, he, he colluded uh, with Rome. Herod uh, Agrippa was paranoid, insecure, and ruthless, and he disliked anyone who threatened to disrupt Roman peace. So Herod began to persecute the church. One, to crush this little band of would-be troublemakers. And two, to try and increase his popularity with the Jews. For Herod, this was just another mechanism by which he intended to hold on to power. Herod had James beheaded, and the Jews seemed to rather like that. And so Herod had Peter arrested with the clear intention of executing him. But Peter was arrested immediately after the Passover during the Feast of Unleavened, Unleavened Bread uh, when it was against Jewish law to put anyone on trial. And that is the only reason that Peter was lingering in jail. Make no mistake, Peter was awaiting his death. And the church? Well, what could the church do? Peter was in a maximum security prison, guarded by four squads of four soldiers, probably working in shifts. He slept manacled between two soldiers. It was a dire situation. And Jesus' followers did the only thing they could do. They gathered and they prayed. And here we see a face-off between the world and the church, each wielding its weapon of choice. The, the world wields oppressive power and force. The church, prayer. Now, I don't know if you're a fan of prison break films. Escape from Alcatraz, the Shawshank Redemption, the Great Escape. I rather like them. And in those films, despite appearances, the person or the people making the escape are always in complete control. Have you ever noticed that? Well, Peter is no Birdman of Alcatraz. Uh, far from being in control, he's almost a completely passive agent in all this. Uh, you, you can imagine bleary-eyed Peter thinks he's dreaming when this angel turns up to uh, release him from prison. And, and he has to be told to do everything. Listen to what the angel says to him. Quick, get up. How Peter was able to sleep in the first place, I don't know. But quick, get up. Put on your clothes and your sandals. Wrap your cloak around you. I mean, this is getting dressed by numbers. Anyone who's ever had to get a small child ready for school will sympathize with this angel who finally says, follow me. And Peter walks straight out of prison and gets a block away before he realizes that he isn't dreaming. So he's broken out of prison, and he knows that his absence will soon be discovered. So he hurries off to the house where many of the believers had gathered to pray. And it's not unreasonable to suppose that this is the same house where Jesus and his disciples ate the Last Supper, and the same house where the disciples uh, were waiting on the day of Pentecost. So Peter knocks at the door. It's me, Peter, let me in. And this servant girl, Rhonda, is so full of joy and excitement that she forgets to open the door. 
She just runs off, runs into the house to tell the others, and they simply don't believe her. She exclaims, Peter is at the door, and they say, you are out of your mind. Isn't it interesting that the person who comes to tell them that their prayers have been answered, they accuse that person of being mad. Meanwhile, Peter is outside in his orange jumpsuit, still knocking at the door, hoping that someone will open it before he gets caught. This is more like a scene from Dumb and Dumber than The Great Escape. But they do eventually open the door. And when Peter explains what's happened, they just know, don't they? They just know that Jesus will uphold his church. It's such a relief to know that the survival of the church depends on Jesus and not on us. But we must be very clear. The world will try to stamp out the church. In verse 11, Peter says, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. What were the Jewish people hoping would happen? They were hoping that Peter would be executed, yes, but it didn't stop there. They were hoping that the church would be completely eradicated. In recent history, many attempts have been made to eradicate the church in various parts of the world. The Soviets in Soviet Russia, the uh, communists in China, uh, Pol Pot in Cambodia, Boko Haram in northern Nigeria, IS in the Middle East. At this very moment, there is a radical group in India that has pledged to eradicate Christianity from India by the year 2021. In the Western world, Christianity is threatened not by militant groups, but by the secularists. What are these secularists hoping will happen? Well, for decades, they've been hoping that Christianity will just go away. And many have rather optimistically, from their perspective, predicted that it would. In the 1950s, the atheist British philosopher Bertrand Russell said this, Religion is something left over from the infancy of our intelligence. It will fade away as we adopt reason and science as our guidelines. But if that were true, by now there'd be neither intelligent theists, people who believe in God, nor theistic scientists. Religion hasn't faded away, and on a global scale, is showing absolutely no signs of doing so. I recently read a paper about the work of the well-known sociologist Peter Berger. Uh, Allow me to read a a little extract. It said, early in his career, Berger, like most sociologists in the 1960s, believed that secularization was an inevitable byproduct of modernization and that religion was slowly fading out of society. As time went on, he and his academic peers began to realize that not only was this not the case, Uh, but nearly the opposite was occurring. So we need to understand that there are those who wish for the disappearance of the church. They hope for it, they predict it, they work for it, and in many parts of the world, they will use force to precipitate it. But equally, we need to understand that Jesus will uphold his church. At the time when Peter was miraculously released from prison, the church was in its infancy and at the most precarious 
and volatile stage of its existence, a few thousand believers sandwiched between the Jewish culture uh, that hated them and rejected them and the Roman Empire that had control over them. Humanly speaking, the odds were dismal. And yet, the church prevailed. But, you know, we're not studying this passage in order to say, look at this cruel world that hates us. Let's shut the doors, batten down the hatches, and protect ourselves. We're not trying to create an us and them type scenario. John 3.16 begins, God so loved the world. God so loved the world. And we are called to love the world, to be in the world, and to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world. So what are we to learn from this passage, and indeed from the history of the church, right up until the present day? Well, firstly, we need to understand that if we uphold the teachings of Jesus, we will come under fire. If we're not prepared for that, then we may react in a way that's not helpful for the spread of the gospel. Uh, That is to say, we either put our heads back down below the parapet or we capitulate. To put our heads back down below the parapet is to say the world doesn't like the Christian message. So we'll just keep quiet. We'll just make our faith a very private thing. We won't talk about it. To capitulate is to say the world doesn't like the Christian message. So there must be something wrong with the message. Let's change it and tell the world what it wants to hear. But neither of those approaches is biblical or satisfactory. But there is a third option. And that is to keep proclaiming the good news of Jesus with confidence in the knowledge that Jesus will uphold his church. If today's passage tells us anything, it tells us that the church of Christ can never be stamped out. The advance of the gospel is unstoppable. And we should be really encouraged by this. So often in Christian circles, we hear people bemoaning the decline of the church. The country is becoming more secular. The church is struggling. Our membership is down. It sounds so defeatist. But this is nothing new. It is nothing new. Throughout history, The pendulum of the church has swung from expansion to oppression, from growth to shrinkage, from advance to retreat. If we were living in China, right now we'd be celebrating the rapid expansion of the church. And I don't know what people mean when they say that the church is shrinking. The church is every Christian who has ever lived. Christians live and die, but they don't cease to be part of the church because they will be raised to everlasting life when Jesus returns. So if all but one Christian died tomorrow, so 2.2 billion people, give or take, and that one surviving Christian, if that one Christian made one convert, the church would have grown by one person. We must remember that the church is eternal and it comprises every Christian who has ever lived. The advance of the gospel and the growth of the church is unstoppable. Herod tried 
to stop the church in its tracks. But in the end, it was Herod who got stopped in his tracks. At the end of Acts 12, we we read an account of Herod's untimely death. He delivered a public address wearing his royal robes, which incidentally were made of silver, so he must have looked incredibly impressive. And the crowd, suitably impressed, shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man. Verse 23 says this, Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now that sounds pretty weird. I don't know about you, but that uh, conjures up some interesting and uh, disturbing images in my mind. But you know, this event is also recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus, who, who, uh, whose account is, is almost identical. And the worms are most likely the, the, the kind of parasitic worms that can grow in one's stomach or intestines. That's what Herod died of. So it's not quite as weird as it sounds. But look at how this passage, chapter 12, is framed. It begins with the church in dire straits. And it ends with Herod Agrippa I, this great persecutor of the church, meeting an untimely end. And the final verse, verse 24, says, But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So when we face opposition for proclaiming the name of Jesus and upholding his teaching, let us do so with total confidence. Jesus will uphold his church. Jesus said these words to Peter, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Acts 12 demonstrates that the church cannot and will not be overcome, even by the most extreme circumstances. Jesus' promise held true for Peter and the early church. It's held true for the church throughout history, and it will hold true for us. So let us proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with total confidence. Jesus will uphold his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a country, in a culture where it's not dangerous to be a Christian. We're not risking our lives by being here this morning. And we thank you for that. We remember those Christians in other parts of the world who literally risk their life every time they go to church. But Father, in this country, we do experience opposition of some kind. Being being a Christian can be Socially awkward can mean that we're, we're put under the microscope. It might mean that people look at us differently. Help us not to worry about any of that. Help us not to be concerned about what the world thinks of us. Help us to care only about what you think of us. And we thank you that you love us and that you've died for us and that you will uphold us, your church, in this place. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.